Begin verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them, um, the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees and Jesus, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, that is that Christ answered them well, the scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one, and there is none other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I continue to repeat the context just so we remember, and some of you may have been absent and don't realize that where we are in the gospel right now, it's Tuesday before the crucifixion. And Jesus is faced with a lot of questions. Many people have referred to this as uh, question day or question Tuesday. And we've seen that um, the religious leaders of Israel are wanting to try and trip him up and get him to stumble over his words or make a mistake so they can have him brought before either the Sanhedrin and the council to show and prove that he is a heretic and he's not from God or to catch him blaspheming against Caesar so they can be brought before those ruling authorities. Either way, they want him dead. It's cleared. Mark pointed out. After this, some of these things, they wanted to find a way to kill him, put him to death. So they're not joking around here. They do not like Jesus. And we've seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And we've even seen the ones in this text before, the scribes, because they were with the Pharisees earlier um, when Jesus was questioned about his authority to run the money changers out of the temple. The scribes were there with the Pharisees. In fact, often... The Pharisees and the scribes are found together in Scripture. You may recall that one time Jesus said to some of his listeners, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom. So they were always together with them. And just in case you don't know a lot about them, I like to try to explain these groups because sometimes we just kind of read past them, don't know who they are. They're actually, their roots go all the way back to the Old Testament, um, to even the book of Judges where there um, they served in some kind of military office. Later, the scribes were secretaries of state. Uh, They prepared and issued decrees in the name of the king. Um, They also discharged various other important public duties of men of high authority. So these guys were pretty important. Um, They were writers. In fact, um, Baruch is said to have wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord. He wrote down the words for Jeremiah. He was a scribe. He was a writer of uh, important information. Later, after the captivity of Babylon, um, they be- they became uh, switched their attention to the law specifically and the law of God. And 
became very acquainted with the law and devoted themselves to copying the law. So these guys knew the law of God, and that's why I'm giving you this information, not to bore you, and I'm not that smart. I'm reading it straight from the Bible Dictionary where I got it. You can look it up too. But they finally not only were what some would call very astute um, students of the law, but they also began uh, adding to the law. They added their own traditions to what God's word had already said and what the law taught, therefore obscuring it and really rendering the law of none effect because they took and added to it, which um, God is not ever pleased with. In the New Testament, the scribes are also called lawyers. No offense to lawyers, but the scribes are lawyers as well as writers and as well as law keepers. And um, they very often are found hostile toward the apostles in Acts, for example, chapter 4 and chapter 6. However, some of them were found to be very um, friendly to the gospel and to the preachers in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 23, one you may recall, Gamaliel was a scribe and part of the Sanhedrin, and he advised them to um, refrain from hurting those men when they captured them, and that was the apostles. So that's who the scribes are. And up to this point, as I mentioned, they were involved in trying to help trip Jesus up. And it's amazing because they're the law keepers. They're the teachers of the law. Yet they missed totally, at least the majority of them, missed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law that they taught. And he was right before them. He was the one that was prophesied to come. He embodied everything that they taught and everything that they loved. But this scribe seemed to be different than the others. There seems to be something sincere. I hope as you were as we were reading it together, you kind of sense a different tone in Mark's writing about this guy. You don't get the sense that he's trying to trick Jesus also. Now maybe his uh, his um, compliments, maybe they uh, were a little over the top, but you don't sense that he's being like the Sadducees who came and said, oh, we know you're a great teacher of God and you would never lie. You always tell the truth. No, he just says, Mark says he observed their arguing and their disputing and he decided to ask Jesus this question. Very sincere, I believe. Much like the rich young ruler, remember? who back in chapter 11 had a sincere question. I believe this scribe has a burning question that's really been eating at him. Like many before him and many after him, at some point when he was all alone maybe and all the noise was gone, he thought through his religion and all of his shallow, showy deeds of goodness. And when he really thought about the requirements of the law, and what they were saying to him. And the fact that he knew what the law said. And he had memorized much of it. At some point I believe he was hit by the sobering thought. That you know what? It's impossible for a person to keep all the commandments. He must have been overwhelmed by the minutia of law keeping. By that I mean just all the precise tiny details. 
not only of God's law and, uh, as a whole, but the ones that they themselves had added to it. It must have overwhelmed him to be thinking, I can't do this. I put on a good front. I act like I'm keeping the law. I tell people to keep the law. I tell people I keep the law. But just like the rich young ruler, there was something he just knew wasn't right. So he asked Jesus this question. Tired of trying, tired of doing. At some point realizing that if keeping all these laws are the way to God, he was in trouble. Because number one, he couldn't even remember if he kept them all, right? There's too many of them. And so what he does is he comes to Jesus and says, okay, if you're reading the King James, it says, what is the first commandment? And the ESV kind of clears it up. He's asking, what is the most important one? I know all of them, and even the ones we've added, but I need to know which ones matter. Kind of like, again, the rich young ruler. I've kept all these. At least the second table, I've loved my neighbor. I've done this and done this. And Jesus said, well, then sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And the problem wasn't that he was rich. The problem wasn't that he wouldn't give to the poor. The problem is he didn't want to follow Jesus because that's where, that's where the ultimate truth was. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself because you've never loved God completely. You don't even love God enough to follow his Messiah. But here's this scribe, this authority of the law, this expert in the law, and he's understanding he's got to be. Why else would he be asking this? Jesus, you seem to know this, so tell me, what does it take? What is most important? What matters the most? And remember, that is precisely the point of the law of God, by the way, to bring us to the end of ourselves and to the feet of Jesus, right? That's what we're told. It's, it's, the, the, it's a teacher, like a schoolmaster that brings us, the law brings us to Christ by saying, essentially, whoever does this will live by it. If you can live by it, then you can get to God. Just like Adam, if you can do what God has commanded perfectly, then you'll get to God. And the law piles upon us like that. Do this, do this and live, do this and live. Until finally, we like this scribe realize I can't do it. And so there's Jesus. Well, what I do? Well, Jesus did, so I put my faith in him. And so I think it's important that we recognize that in this text. And I want you to listen to this statement because I think this sums up what's going on. Unless our religion shows us our need for God, our religion will actually keep us from God. Think about that. That's where the scribe was. That's where the Pharisees were. Their religion, they were good at it. They hadn't brought them to their need of God. They actually kept them away. And man, do we live in the middle of that or what? Where everybody's wanting to use religion, Christianity, the Bible to see how good they are. Look how good I'm doing. It's like a, it's like a, a litmus test. Well, the Bible says this, and like the rich young ruler, we convince ourselves, well, I've done that, I've done that, I've done this. In our religion... And Christianity is a religion. I know we don't like to think of that as such, but it is. It is, an, it is a way by which we get to God. It is religion. It is something that affects us in the way that we act and think. We know that we can't be religious like we need to be, but Jesus has been, so we put our trust in him. 
But so many are trying to read the Bible to find out they're okay rather than reading the Bible to see who God is and, by, and thereby realizing I'm not okay. Man, if God is perfect and he demands perfection and holiness and he demands law-keeping, I can't do it. And this is precisely what Jesus does in his answer. Jesus, what's the most important? Well, first he takes them back to just before God gave the law to his people. The Lord is one. He points out the uniqueness of God. There is no other. First of all, you need to understand that law-keeping is to point you to God, and there's only one God, and he is unique. That's why he has a law, by the way. He gave law to his people so they would be different because God is unique. And he points out, hey, the world might do this, all that Deuteronomy 6 we read, the world might have other gods, the world might do this and that and that, but my people don't do that. So if you want to be my people, you do what I say, and if not, I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. Now, again, that's very heavy and daunting, but that is the law. Again, the law says be perfect and live imperfect and die. Which again, thank God for grace in Jesus because he kept the law. And we can't. So Jesus says this, the Lord is one. And here's the answer to your question. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And in Deuteronomy 6, it ends with strength. But Jesus even adds in all your mind. There's got to be no part of you that's not loving God. And then love neighbor as yourself. In other words, he basically says, you want to know what it takes to get to God, because that's essentially what the scribe is asking. What's the most important? What do I need to do to get to the kingdom? Love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. Because that's what he's saying. Get this thing down to something that's manageable. Which one? Which one do I need to worry about? But if you think about it, rather than simplifying it for him, Jesus really complicates it more. Because in essence, Jesus says, you don't know which one's most important? All of them. That's what he says. Do all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor like you love yourself, which is all in. And so what he does is tell him, okay, if you want to be perfect and you want to enter the kingdom, and you want to know what's most important. What's most important is everything that God has said. Keep the law and live. And the scribe catches on, I think. He says, you're correct. And again, I don't know. Some people, if you read commentary, some people say he's kind of, I mean, who is this guy to say to Jesus? Oh, you're correct, Jesus. But I think what he was saying in his essence is, I've thought about this, and, I, and this is correct. What's most important is all of it. Because doing, doing what Jesus is saying here, loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is more than even all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All that whole thing that is the sacrificial system, the scribe recognized None of that is as important as loving God, heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Because if you don't, you won't. The, the sacrifices matter nothing. And see, it's the same way today. You can come to church. You can do the right thing. 
all that will count for nothing if the Lord your God is not the first thing and first and foremost love in your life. You say, but I can't do that. I know. And here's the truth. If that's where it ended, if it just said, okay, everybody that's going to go to heaven will love the Lord their God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, every bit of it, there won't be one ounce of it not happening. And then you'll love your neighbor as yourself. All that will you do perfectly. Heaven would be empty. It would just be God. But again, thankfully, we're not let off the hook. We don't get to say, oh, grace came along, therefore it don't matter. No, it still matters. We are saved by works, just not our works. We're saved by the works of Christ. He did everything that needed to be done perfectly. Never disobeyed the law, never transgressed the law, loved neighbor perfectly because he loved God, his Father, perfectly. And so we put our faith and trust not in law-keeping, but in Jesus, the law-keeper. Are we still responsible? Yeah. And now we have the Spirit of God in us that we don't have an excuse to say, well, I can't love my neighbor. He's not very lovable. Well, yeah. If they were real lovable, if everybody was real lovable, we, we probably wouldn't have to be commanded to love them. And we do love God because he first loved us. This is a heart, soul, mind thing. This is every bit of us. It's so easy just to look to the Bible and see if we're doing the exterior things right. And I love that Jesus brought this back around to this. Hey, no, not, not just all the things in the extremities, but also even your mind. Your thought life has to be perfect and pure. And at least if most of us can't admit that our, our works are not perfect, we can all admit our thinking is not very good at times. And that's what Jesus did right in the Sermon on the Mount. You think adultery is wrong, and it is, but if you lust, you've broken that commandment. You think murder is wrong, and it is, and you think you have murdered, but if you've hated somebody, you've broken that commandment. And he's just, he's bringing everything internally, which is what we have to do. It's internal. And you might think you can one day fix yourself outside, but you know, like this scribe, you can't fix what's on the inside. You can't change your heart. You can't take a dead heart and make it alive you can't put dead bones back together which is what God does and here's the good news if you keep reading in Deuteronomy past 6 all the way to 30 listen to what we are told and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with your heart soul mind and you may live isn't that good because if you stop at six, you're like, oh, no, I can't do this. But you keep reading, and just like he says in Ezekiel in the New Covenant, I can't do these good works. Lord, I don't even want to do them. I will make you do them, and you will do them. But the great news is you wouldn't even feel like you're made to do them because you'll want to do them. As we say a lot, he not only changes your doing, he changes your want to do as well. And so in Deuteronomy 30, we find out, I can't love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, and mind. No, I can't. But he's going to circumcise my heart and change it in such a way that I will and I'll live. Why? Because I will realize when I'm brought to life from death that my hope is Christ and not me. My hope is faith in him, not faith in myself. 
And so you almost get the sense that, much like the rich young ruler, something's not quite where it should be for the scribe. The ruler went away sorrowful because he had many riches. But praise God, Jesus brought him to the end of himself, did he not? You want to know about these commandments, but you know the real problem? You don't love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. It's not about your riches. God owns the cattle of a thousand hills, which is a way of saying there's nothing that God doesn't have or nothing that he needs. But he was pointing out to this ruler, your deeds and your stuff will not get you in. Only following Jesus would do. And so here with the scribe, he acknowledges what Jesus says is correct. And Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And that's, a, that's an amazing statement. I've read all kinds of ideas. What does he mean by that? And again, I think much like the rich young ruler, you're, you're getting it. You've come to the right place. Something is happening. You, you're, you're, it's just your mind is still in the wrong place. To describe, you're getting it. You, you, you understand you come to the right place. Just still something. You're not sold out. You haven't put your faith in Christ. You're still, your faith is still in something else. Now, as I, saw, as I mentioned with the rich young ruler, the fact that, the, that Mark said Jesus looked at him and loved him gives me great hope for, for him. Because I think the Bible is pretty clear. God doesn't love everybody like we want to say. He loves his people. And if you hear God loves you and you believe that, that's because God does love you. I don't care how unlovable you think you are. If you hear me say God loves you and Christ died for you, that's because he did. And you can believe that. And so to describe, I think the same thing is happening. He said, Lord, something's happening different than other scribes. Just like with Nicodemus. Why was Nicodemus the Pharisee coming to Jesus by night saying, how does a man get to heaven? How can a man do this? This scribe is saying, hey, I've tried every way that I've been told and taught, and I'm still empty. Something's missing. And so Jesus says to him, yeah, you're not far. That must have been encouraging to hear this man who he might not have recognized as the Messiah of God, but he knew he's from God, and his teaching was powerful and of God, and he hears him say, you're not far from the kingdom. Maybe that's where some of you are. You're not far from the kingdom. You've heard this, and you believe it, but for whatever reason, God has just not plunged you into Christ. He hasn't given you that moment where you say, I, I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know what to do from here, but I know this, if I'm going to make it to God, it's got to be through Christ. It can't be through me. Then what the Bible would say to you then is repent and believe in Christ. And by repent, it means change your mind. This part of Jesus sticking this in here, your heart, soul, and mind and strength. To repent means to say the same thing God says, to agree with God, to agree that I am a sinner and I can't get to God on my own. I can't live long enough to do enough good things. I've got to stop trying and just trust that Christ is going to save me. Stop justifying sin and say the same thing God says about it. You're a sinner. You're not going to make it. You're not going to fix it. This guy is somebody that we would all have looked at and said, and I hear this all the time, and I'm so, I, I hate hearing this, and I hear it a lot 
in the, in the world I work in. Well, if anybody's going to heaven, she's going. I was told that this week. If anybody's going to make it, she. And what we mean by that is, well, we've looked at her life and she looks a lot better than most people. She does things. She says things. She went to church. She reads the Bible. And and there's such a, just like these scribes and Pharisees and the people we read about in the Bible, and like many of us, there's just such a, a, a misunderstanding of what is the Bible saying to us. It is bringing us to the end of ourselves, bringing us to who God is, and showing us our need for a Savior. So that we don't ever look around and say, well, now if anybody's going to make it, he's going to make it. We realize that the only way anybody makes it is by grace through faith in Christ. And in that regard, everybody can make it when they're born again and brought into the kingdom by God himself. And what I mean, and that's very specific. Everybody, by everybody, I mean everybody who does believe in Christ instead of themselves. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because it, it does what we do matter? Yes. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, all this law keeping you're doing is worthless. Stop keeping the law. Stop trying to do what I've commanded you to do. No. But he's trying to get him to, the first thing is first, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And really, if you want to know what Christianity is about, instead of picking this up and going, oh gosh, I've got to learn every bit of this, and abide by every bit of it. Here's what the Christianity is boiled down to what Jesus said. Love God and love neighbor. I mean, it's pretty simple. But you got to love God, and he's got to give you a love for himself because he first loved you. And then you'll f- figure out and learn through what he promised in Deuteronomy 30, the circumcision of your heart, you'll learn to love your neighbor. That's what we come back to over and over. Our prayers and our faith and our trust. And every day that's where we are, Christians. God, I, I know I didn't love you the way I should. I haven't even done that for a second. But just keep teaching me how to love you and keep showing me that I need to love you and keep putting that in my heart and show me how to love the people around me. Because I don't want to do that either most days. I want to be nice because that's the way I was raised. I'm nice, but I don't really love people. I mean, how many of us do things not because we love people because it's just the right thing to do? And you can do the right thing with the wrong motives, and that's the point Jesus is making. You can do things out of your strength and still not be thinking correctly. And so it always brings us back to Christ and our need for him. And it's an amazing thing, and we're going to keep going through this and see. Uh, I love what it says there after this. Nobody dared ask him any more questions. The King James says that after this, no one durst ask him a question. That just sounds like weightier, doesn't it? But it's like... After this, what else do you ask him? He's answered every question. He's hushed the mouth of every opponent. I think the next question, really, that he's asked is by Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Until then, he's not asking any more questions. He just does teaching. Let's pray. Father, we trust you to send your word to accomplish exactly what you want it to do. In, in your hearers, everybody's gathered here today for a purpose. Lord, you brought us together specifically for a reason today, exactly how we are gathered, and we trust that you have spoken through your word, by your spirit. Maybe you've awakened somebody from death to life today, and they trust in Christ, and it's a very feeble faith, and it seems like it's not much, but it, it's everything. 
And I pray that you'll continue to awaken that within them. And by their minds, they'll think this through and see as they hear the scriptures taught that Jesus is the only Savior of mankind. And that you'll give them repentance for their sin, real repentance, which means they agree with you. And whatever that means from here on out, they trust that you will do what needs to be done. And God, for the rest of us who have been brought to life by your Spirit, I pray that you will continue to teach us how to love you and how to love our neighbors. And um, change our community and our families through that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.